Today we come to the end of our series called Reality Check. It's actually been our summer series. Uh, This is week eight of eight. Uh, If you're just joining us today, what we've been doing is looking uh, at the kings of the Old Testament in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And we've been bouncing back and forth between the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, it was all one big nation at one point, and then King Solom- after King Solomon, David's son, uh, the kingdom split into two, and then there was two kingdoms. And what we've been doing is bouncing back and forth, looking at the kings and how they needed a reality check, how that same reality check applies to us living in the 21st century, and then we've been seeing the grace and mercy and faithfulness of our God. Each week we've been looking at a different king and then a theme to go along with that king, and today's theme is doing what's right even though it won't change a thing. And so the question that we're really going to answer today is this. What motivates you to do what's right? What motivates you to live a godly life and do what is right? We're going to answer that by looking at King Josiah, who wasn't the last king of Judah. Uh, There's a few more after him, but he's nearing the end. Josiah was the grandson of King Manasseh, who we looked at last week. And if you remember, Manasseh was probably the most wicked king of Judah. Uh, With everything he did, we we looked last week, uh, he worshipped the occult, he offered his children in a sacrifice in the fire to uh, false gods. He did all kinds of evil things, worshipped all kinds of false gods, until the end of his life, when God led him away into captivity, he had a change of heart, and he turned to the Lord, and the Lord forgave him. Manasseh had a son named Ammon, and Ammon was just as wicked as early years of Manasseh. Ammon died and left his son, Josiah, to be king. Josiah takes the throne in Jerusalem as an eight-year-old. He's eight years old, and he becomes king of Jerusalem, king of Judah. And when he turned 16, he really began to follow the Lord. He was unlike Ammon, unlike early years of Manasseh. He turned to the Lord and started to get rid of all the altars and false gods in Jerusalem. But then something happened when he would turn 26 years old, when he'd been ruling for 18 years. If you want a reality check... Uh, he turned 26 and had been a king for 18 years. You know what I was doing when I was 26? I just, got, I just graduated from seminary and was trying to figure out how to be a pastor for the first time. And here's Josiah, an 18-year-old vet at being a, a king. Really puts things into perspective. But at 26 years old, he, he gathers money, government money, and he gives it to his secretary to take to the temple for repairs. And when he gets to the temple, the secretary gives it to the high priest named Hilkiah, and Hilkiah says, thanks. By the way, Mr. Secretary, we found the book of the law. 
What he had found was either Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, or he just found Deuteronomy. Either way, he found the Bible. That implies that they had lost it. Think about that. They had lost the Bible and had been doing church without the Word of God. The high priest, the priest of all the priests, had no idea where the Bible was until one day he finds it. He gives it to the secretary, and the secretary brings it to Josiah, the king. Josiah reads it, and he mourns, and he grieves because he realizes how far the nation had gone away from praising and glorifying and living for the Lord. And so Josiah, full of zeal and passion for the Lord, starts removing all the altars. And that's where we pick up in chapter 23. We're going to see exactly what Josiah does and the right thing that he did. Here's what we're told. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart, and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Notice what Josiah does. He doesn't just read it and say, oh no, I need to get back on track. He does, but he says, oh no, we as a nation need to get back on track. And he wasn't just going to say, go to the temple and hear it. No, he brought everybody in the kingdom of Judah to the palace, and he read the book of the law to them. He said, you stand there. I am going to read this so you know exactly what it says. And in the presence of people, and presence of all the people, Josiah said, I'm making the covenant with the Lord. We are going to follow his decrees and his statutes exactly like he's laid it out. And the people also said, us too. Did he know that the people would change? No but he was passionate enough. He was going to do what was right and put the word of the Lord first. And then he went traveling. Not only did he get rid of all the altars in Jerusalem um, and, and all the false god, all the high places, he went through the entire kingdom of Judah tearing down all the altars, all the false gods, all the high places and said, you need to worship in Jerusalem. But even that wasn't enough for him. He knew at one point all of Israel had been one kingdom, and so what did he do? He went up to the kingdom of Israel. That was no more, because Babylon or Assyria wiped them out. He went up to Samaria, the capital city of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he tore down all the altars and all, to all the false gods. He went throughout the kingdom of Israel, not even his ruling territory, to tear down these altars and fall, to the false gods. He was going to do what was right, no matter what. He was going to bring the people back to the word of God. 
And then we're told this. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. What was the Passover? It was the celebration, the festival that celebrated the Lord's deliverance, delivering the people from slavery to the Egyptians. In 1500 BC, under Moses, God led the people out of their slavery to the Egyptians, and God said, from now on, every year, celebrate this Passover, and when your children ask, why are we doing this Passover, tell them, it's because the Lord delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians. And apparently, it hadn't been celebrated since then. At least celebrated how the Lord laid out to celebrate it. Not even King David celebrated it to this extent, we're told. He brought the people back to the Lord. He was going to do what was right. Finally, here's how Josiah is described. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods and the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. You may remember a few weeks ago we looked at King Hezekiah and Scripture said that there was no king like him. Hezekiah trusted the Lord, had faith in the Lord, unlike any other. But there was no king like Josiah who had passion and zeal with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength the way Josiah did. Josiah not only turned for himself, he tried to turn the whole nation back to the Lord. And the extent he went to was pretty amazing. But do you want to know the most amazing part of it all? After, it's a part I left out actually, uh, after they find the book of the law, Josiah reads it. He mourns, but before he does anything, he inquires of the Lord. He says, Lord, how bad is it? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? And the Lord responds to this prophet saying, I'm going to wipe out Jerusalem. The Babylonians are going to come. These people have forsaken me, and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The amazing part is Josiah knew this was going to happen even before he started any reform. God's decision had been made. The outcome wasn't going to change because of Josiah's efforts. God had decreed, Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. And Josiah, it doesn't matter the reform you bring. It doesn't matter how much you do right, no matter how much you bring back to the Lord, the, the people back to the Lord, the covenant of the Lord, the city is going to be wiped out. So what was the point? <laughs> Why bother? Right? 
if the Lord has already decided that Jerusalem is going to be wiped out, why bother with the reform? Why not just, Josiah, you trust in the Lord and do something else? Instead of traveling all over the place, I'm sure you have better things to do than go traveling around just to knock some altars over. Because Josiah wasn't doing what was right because of the outcome. He was doing what was right to honor and glorify God. And that's your, really, it's your only point today that I have in your worship folder. It's this. Our motivation is not to change the outcome, but to honor the Lord. As Christians, we're not motivated to do what is right, what is good, what is godly, because of the outcome. First and foremost, we do what is right and godly because it honors and glorifies our God. And we let him figure out the rest. We let him figure out the outcome. And that's what Josiah did. As Josiah did all this, did he hope and pray that some people's hearts would be changed? I'm sure. As, as he did all this, did he hope and pray that maybe God would change his mind? Sure. But it wasn't his first thought because God said, Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. He knew the outcome that was coming. And yet he still turned to the Lord to give him honor and glory, to honor him and love him with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he let God figure out the outcome. Let's go back to that opening question. What motivates you to do good? Are you motivated to do good because you want to change the culture? Whether it's a culture in your home, the culture at your work, the culture at your school. Maybe you're really ambitious and you're motivated to do good because you want to change the culture of America. And so you're hoping that people in these different areas see your good example and they change too. What happens when they don't? What happens when the outcome that you're looking for doesn't happen? Do you throw up your hands and say, well, what's the point? Maybe you're motivated by a reward or the end result. Maybe you're motivated to do good, work hard, have integrity because you want that promotion. Maybe you're motivated to do good because you want your parents' blessing. Because you, want, because you know if you're good, they'll reward you with either some kind of treat, with some kind of present, with some kind of extra time on an iPad or iPhone or something like that, and so you're motivated by the reward. What happens when the reward doesn't come? Maybe you're motivated to earn someone's love and respect, whether it's your parents, whether it's your coworkers, whether it's your peers. You want their love and respect, and so you're motivated to do good and to be honorable, respectable, loving, but what happens when their love and respect doesn't come? Are you still motivated to do what's right and good? Or how about this one? Are you motivated to do what's right and good as a way to manipulate God? 
all of us say no right away, right? I would never want to manipulate God. But when, when situations are stacked against us, when our circumstances are bad and we have big issues in life and big giants facing us, so to speak, do we start to say to ourselves, you know what? I'm going to start living good and right. I'm going to do godly things because then maybe God will look down from heaven, see how good and godly I am, and change my circumstances. But then what happens if it doesn't? What happens if God still allows the Babylonians to come over and wipe out Jerusalem? What happens if God doesn't remove the obstacles in your life, the giants in your life, the hardships in your life, the difficulties in your life? Then do you start getting frustrated because God, look at all the good I've done. Look at how good and godly I'm being and you're still going to let me endure this. You're not going to remove it. And then we get frustrated and our relationship with God takes a hit and we say, what's the point? God, if you're not going to grant my request, if you're not going to bless me the way I want to be blessed, if you're not going to remove these things, then what's the point in living a godly life? What is the point? Why honor God in what we do? Why are we motivated to do good by honoring God through our life and doing the good and right thing? It's because our God has changed our eternal outcome. God has changed our eternal outcome. You see, you and I, and all people, we were on the path to die and then hell. That was our path. And no matter how good we were, no matter how good and right and, and honorable we lived, there was nothing we could do to get out of that situation, to change that outcome. But God could. And God did. By sending his son Jesus. Imagine if Jesus, imagine if Jesus said, hang on God, you want me, Father, to leave heaven. To go to earth, where I'm going to be rejected, where I'm going to be mocked, where I'm going to speak the truth in love and people are going to turn their back on me. You want me to go to earth where I'm going to suffer and die on the cross. A humiliating death, a painful death. You want me to do all that for them. For people who continue to try to manipulate you. For people who come to church on Sunday morning wearing a mask, pretending like everything's okay in their life, and yet during the week their lives are falling apart and they don't turn to you. For people who continue to abuse your grace by saying, it's okay, I'm forgiven, I don't need to change. Imagine if Jesus said, it ain't worth it because the outcome's not going to change. Praise God he didn't. That's what we saw in John chapter 6, right? Jesus spoke hard truth. He spoke hard truth to his disciples. And what did the disciples say? Not just the 12, by the way. There was more followers of Jesus. They said, this is a hard teaching. I can't accept this. 
And they left. And they left. What if Jesus said, there's no point. They're not going to change. Look. But he didn't. Jesus' whole existence, Jesus' whole being is all about one thing, honor, honoring and glorifying the Father through his thoughts, through his words, through his actions. His whole time on earth was motivated to do good and right by one thing, and it was to the will and glory of the Father. It didn't matter. Even if honoring the Father meant suffering. Even if honoring the Father brought crucifixion. Even if honoring and glorifying the Father meant while he's on the cross and people are mocking him in the most humiliating death, Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they are doing because it honored and glorified God. And you know what God did through Jesus? He changed your eternal outcome. Your eternal outcome is no longer death, hell. It's now death, life. Because God looked on the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his innocent death and his resurrection, and said, my stamp of approval, forgiven, forgiven. And that's your eternal uh, status before God. Forgiven, loved, life eternal because of the work of Jesus Christ. That has, your eternal outcome has nothing to do with how good you are right now. It has no, uh, your good, right behavior does not uh, determine your eternal outcome. That is done through the work of Jesus Christ, and it is for sure, through Jesus, heaven is yours. And because God loves you that much, because God loves you, cares about you that much, where he would send his only son to change your eternal outcome, now we say, God, I want to glorify you, I want to honor you through my thoughts, words, and actions, no matter my circumstances. I'm going to do what's right, first and foremost, to honor you. I'm sure many of you have gone to a, a play or a skit of some kind, and all the actors are up on the stage and they're performing for the audience, right? Until that special person is in the audience for, for one of those actors then that actor doesn't care about all the audience. He cares for one in the audience. And he or she performs for that one. That's what you and I are like as we live and honor and glorify the one, God, our Lord. We do what's right in this life, not for everyone out there, but for the one, the Lord God. We live for the audience of one and we honor and glorify him because he loves us so much that he changed our eternal outcome. And we trust him to deal with the earthly outcomes as he sees best. Trusting his promise in Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What happens to me today, what happens to me tomorrow, what happens to me in 10 years, God promises he's going to use to work for my eternal well-being. And because he's changed my eternal outcome, I can trust him, whether in good times or bad times. Whether the nation is saved or the nation is wiped out. Because the Lord loves us. And all we have to do is look to Jesus and how he changed our eternal outcome. And so we do what's right. As we close up this 
series, Reality Check, what we're taking away from today is we're going to honor and glorify God first and foremost and trust that he's going to bring the outcome that best serves my eternal outcome to bring me to his side in heaven where we will experience joy beyond any of our understanding here on earth. And so let's do that. Let's honor and glorify him. Let's be motivated to do what's right and good because it honors and glorifies God. He'll figure out the rest. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for your love through Jesus. Uh, What love you must have for us that you sent your one and only son to change our eternal outcome. Uh, Jesus, what love you must have for us and for the Father that in all you did, you honored and glorified him first and foremost, even when it meant suffering in your life, even when it meant hardships and crucifixion. You honored God uh, to his glory and on our behalf. We thank you for being our perfect substitute so that your record is ours, that when the Father looks at us, we have the perfect record of honoring him and loving him and glorifying him in our thoughts, words, and actions. We thank you for dying on the cross where our sins have been uh, paid for, so we stand before God forgiven. Uh, As we live this life, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to change our heart, to motivate us to do good and right, to give God the Father honor and glory in all that we do. As we live for that audience of one, we ask you to strengthen our faith and trust you no matter what the outcomes in life are because we know that you've changed our eternal outcome. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.